This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. You know, we've been talking about being a faith prepper, especially as we see the uh, times that are coming right now. Again, this is a phrase that I coined so that uh, we can, as people are physical preppers or doomsday, doomsday preppers or people of that nature, being a faith prepper means you see the situations that are coming and you realize now is the time to prepare for those regarding our faith, regarding our, our spiritual understanding of who Christ is. Last week, we talked about learning how to pray at all times. And the the subject dealt with by letting the Holy Spirit direct our prayers through God's Word. And we've been doing this for about two months now, especially with the emails that you've been sent out. And I'm hoping your prayer life has increased. I'm hoping you're seeing God differently now than you did a couple months ago. But you're only going to learn how to pray at all times if you believe prayer changes things. Which brings us to the topic of today, which is learning how to trust at all times. I can only trust, I'm only going to pray if I realize that God's going to do something. I learn, I have to learn how to trust Him at all times by allowing my faith to grow, by having it exercised. And sometimes the biblical example is most of the time your faith grows during what we would call unpleasant circumstances. You're going to trust God for finances. That usually means you're not going to have any. So you have to trust him for that. You're going to trust God for physical healing. That usually means you have to be sick before that happens. And, and this is, this is what it means to grow in our faith, to try to understand what this faith is and, and, uh, and have it exercised in him. Now, you know, the scripture talks about the just shall live by faith, but I, I need for you all to understand today that we all live by faith every single day multiple times a day, hundreds of times a day. As a matter of fact, our lives, whether you know Christ or don't know Christ, our lives are defined by living in faith because all of us live by faith in something. The question is, what is the object of that faith? What are we placing our faith in? And there's a difference between just regular faith and there's a difference between that and what saving faith is. So we have to examine what we're living by faith by, and I'm going to give you a couple examples. And so you ask a few questions. You know, the the driving forces of my life that I'm placing my faith in, uh, is that object reliable? Does it represent truth? Or is it a mirage? It's just something from our culture. It's something I've invented in my own head. Is the object of my faith something eternal that's going to outlast me? Or is the object of my faith something like trinkets and toys that are can be gone in just a moment? Does the object of my faith change with time? In other words, if I place my total faith in this today, is it reliable and trustworthy when I'm young to be able to place my faith in it when I'm older? And is is what I'm placing my faith in ultimately worth it? In other words, what's the payoff for me? Does it Does it lead to a better life on earth? Does it provide me what I need? Is there some sort of eternal object in that? These are questions that we ask 
about faith and the object that we place our faith in. For example, we could take a microcosm of people across America, and we could ask them what they place their faith in, and some people would say, I place my faith in the government. I don't, do you? There's a lot of people who do. You watch all this stuff going on in Washington right now, and, and you know, I place my faith in the government. I believe. I'm banking on the fact that they're going to do right. Or I place my faith in my family. My family will always be there for me. My, my relationship with my wife will never change. And, and sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. I place my faith in my job. For my grandfather's generation, that really worked. You work for IBM for 40 years or General Motors or something of that nature. And if you take care of the company, the company will take care of you. Exactly how life is now, right? No. Uh, I, I'm going to place my faith in my own intellect. In other words, I know what's right. I, I can figure this out myself. I'm, I'm smarter than everybody else. I have this ability to, to always get things right at all times. Or I'm going to place my faith in the culture in which we live. Whatever the culture says is acceptable, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I believe. Every one of us places faith in something. We can have faith in money. If I have a lot of money, I'm worth something. I'm important. I feel good about myself. If I don't have money, then I don't. Uh, fame or how important I think I am or my pleasure and my well-being. My whole life is focused on just making me happy or my own view of heaven and hell when I kind of invent it to make me feel good about it are a million other passing fancies we can place our faith in. The idea is the fact that that when we sing songs about faith and we talk about placing faith in Christ and the just shall live by faith and by faith, by grace through faith you've been saved, it's not just faith in general. It is the object of that faith that provides the benefit. I want you to think about uh, the faith it took for you to just to come here today. First of all, you, you had faith that your alarm would go off in order to wake you up in time. True? You had faith that uh, your car would crank. You had faith that when you got in your car, that all the people coming this way would stay on their side of the line and you would stay on this side of the line. You had faith when you pulled up to a stoplight that if the light says green for you, then it obviously was red for them and that they would really stop. If you didn't believe that, you would have... You would have never gone through the intersection. You parked out here and you had faith that it wasn't going to rain, you weren't going to slide down the hill, that would you walk into this building that an architect or the construction of this building was satisfactory enough that it's not going to crush on top of us and kill your children. I mean, there's an element of faith in every single thing that we do. You go to a doctor who you don't know personally. You've spent five minutes with him twice a year. And he looks at your chart, and he prescribes some drug that you can't even pronounce. Here's what you need to do. You need to take three of these three times a day for two weeks. I'll write you a prescription. So you go to CVS Pharmacy, and you hand a prescription to a lady that you don't know. And she hands you a bunch of pills. You have no idea the pills in the bottle say what they're supposed to be on the bottle and whether they're going to kill you or not, but you take them anyway. Because we have faith in the system. We have faith. The object of our faith is, I believe the doctor. I believe the prescription. I believe the drugs. I believe the pharmacist. The idea is the fact that we take faith. We all live by faith. I write a 
I write a mortgage payment out. I'm going to send it to my mortgage company. I put it in an envelope with a stamp, and then I don't worry about it anymore. And I have faith that that's going to be delivered by somebody I don't even know and on time, so I don't get charged a late fee. I get into a car. I, I fly on a plane. I have faith that the pilot's not drunk, that he knows what he's doing, that this several-ton piece of metal can actually fly. Otherwise, we would never get on a plane if we didn't trust something. Picking up the phone, surfing the Internet, everything that we do, everything that we do in our entire life is based on faith. We are going to, uh, after, after church, you decide you want to go to a restaurant and eat. So I'm going to go to the restaurant, and, and I see the the menu. Let's say we went to Cadobas or something. I have no idea who's preparing the food. As a matter of fact, the guy that prepares the food is in a back room with the door closed, and I can't even see what's going on, right? I have no idea. He brings me the food. I sit down and eat it, and, and I think it's okay. I mean, everything we do boils down to faith. But the key is the object of that faith. John Phillips the great Bible commentator, said this. The Muslim puts his faith in the Quran and in Muhammad. The idolater puts his faith in some graven image. The humanist puts his faith in himself. The philosopher puts his faith in his own ideas. The materialist puts his faith in his money. The religionist puts his faith in his own good works. Every one of us has faith that we place in some object, and the question is, what is the object of our faith? I mean, we all, all of us, all of us exercise faith. But not all faith is saving faith. And what happens is we say, I believe in God. Okay, but James is going to show us in a moment that so does Satan. That's not saving faith. Saving faith means that the object of our faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only can we just believe in him, but faith has to be acted upon in order to be faith. I'll never forget the story. I forget the man's name. I wrote about it in uh, Leaving Laodicea, the last chapter. The great famous guy that crossed over the uh, Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And he did it over and over and over again from the Canadian side to the American side and back. And it was the big sensation at the, uh, at the turn of the century. And I remember he would, he would carry, uh, sacks of grain on his shoulders and he went and one time he carried a small little oven and went out to the middle of Niagara Falls on a tightrope and cooked himself an omelet and ate it. And one time he took a wheelbarrow and he put a bunch of uh, grain or cement in a wheelbarrow and he walked all the way across Niagara Falls and turned around and walked all the way back and, and he's, he cried out to the crowd. He says, how many of you believe have faith that I could carry a human being in this wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls. And every one of them said, I believe. And his question was this, we'll get in the wheelbarrow. And nobody did. Nobody. Faith, that's not saving faith. Matter of fact, he did finally carry somebody across Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow, and it happened to have been his 75-year-old mother. She trusted him, the rest of them didn't. You know, God has determined, and this was his call, God has determined that the instrument he uses to bring all of us into a saving knowledge of his son happens to be faith, not works, 
Not duty, not going to church. It's just faith. Nothing else works but faith. There's no other way, no matter how hard you try, period. And as a believer in Christ, we have faith, and the the object of our faith is Christ, and we have enough faith in the object of our faith in order to be saved, but many times we don't have enough faith in the object of our faith to live victoriously. And that's what it means to be a faith prepper. Understand this, faith, like salvation, is a gift from God. Many of many people I did for years reject that gift because I don't want to believe that way. I want to believe my own way. As Jesus says, I want to go down this wide road of salvation rather than this narrow turnstile of faith because I don't think it's fair or I don't think it's right, but it doesn't matter because God is the one that sets the requirements, not us. Remember the verse we had up? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. To ask the questions we always do. By grace you have been saved. How have I appropriated God's grace that leads to salvation into my life? How do I now benefit from what God has done? It's really simple. I do it through faith. Faith in what? Me? Faith on, in what I want to place my object in? No. It's, that faith is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not something you can muster up on your own. It's something that's handed to you by God, by his grace. It is not of how hard you try or how hard you work or how hard you struggle. It's a gift given to you. And the reason why is God wants you to realize it is a gift and it's not for any man to boast about his relationship with God. God is the one who reconciled himself to us. We did not reconcile ourselves to him. I want you to look at uh, the James passage. I want you to see that, that there is some sort of faith that is saving faith, and there's some sort of faith that's not. And what James is saying is that true faith is faith that is followed by actions based on that faith. In other words, the guys could sit there on the Canadian side at Niagara Falls and they could say, yes, I believe you can carry a man across the Niagara Falls in a wheelbarrow. But until I'm willing to get in that wheelbarrow, I really don't believe. It's just words. Words that aren't followed by actions. Words that literally mean nothing. Look what it says here in James chapter 2, verse 14. What does it profit a man? What does it profit my brethren if someone says, says, yes, I believe, I have faith, I trust. If someone says he has faith but does not have works. We're not talking about works for salvation. We're talking about works as evidence of that faith, actions that prove that faith is real. Can a verbal affirmation of a truth save him? Can faith save him? An example. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? What does your words mean without actions. Nothing. Thus, he says, verse 17, 
Also, faith by itself, a verbal affirmation without corresponding actions, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Do we believe someone because of what they say? Or do we believe someone because their life and their actions line up with what they say? Haven't you heard that phrase, words are cheap, but action speaks volumes. You believe that there is one God, verse 19. You do well, that's great. Even the demons believe and tremble, but they don't act on it. They're not saved. It is not saving faith. Do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And he gives him an Old Testament example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? I believe, God, that you are sovereign. I believe that you speak to me. I believe that I hear your voice. Well, here's what I'm telling you to do. I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, the heir of the promise. I want you to take him on the top of a mountain. I want you to slay him as a sacrifice for me. If Isaac said, I ain't doing it, we would look at him. Or if if um, Abraham said, I'm not doing it, we would look at Abraham and go, so you really don't believe. So God really isn't speaking to you. Well, well, sure. No, if he was, you would obey. But since you're not, your faith is justified by your actions. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect or complete? And the scripture was fulfilled which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. If we are choosing to become a faith prepper, to have our faith grow, to be able to trust the Lord even more than we do now in trying situations, the reality is there has to be some sort of corresponding action that allows that to happen. And the reason is that the question always hinges on how we define faith. Is faith an object? Is faith some sort of just belief in something? Is 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 there the difference between just the kind of faith it takes to drive a car or to, to take a pill a doctor gives you or the kind of faith that surrenders your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we look at the Scripture to see how faith is translated. And of course we know this, the word is pistis. It is used over 250 times in the New Testament. It means to win over or to persuade on the outside, but subjectively where you and I live, it means firm persuasion, conviction, or belief in the truth. You shall not shake my faith. I have faith. I have a firm conviction of belief in the truth. It doesn't really matter. There are a combination word of little and faith that are put together uh, five times in the Scripture where Jesus used the phrase, ye of little faith, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But this is what faith means. And why is it important? Because literally everything spiritually, everything in the Spirit is based on faith. 
on purpose. God wants you to believe without seeing. God wants you to believe without touching. God doesn't want to have to confirm to you so you'll believe based on the signs. He wants you to believe based on his character. Classic definition of faith we have in Hebrews 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This is the kind of faith that God wants us to have. Therefore, everything of faith, listen carefully, is designed by God to bypass your senses. Because your senses can be, your senses can be deceived. One of the things I love to watch on YouTube is the pen and teller uh, where they bring these magicians up and they try to trick Penn and Teller, you know, in this big Las Vegas studio. And, and I'm telling you, if you just believe what you saw, you're deceived every time someone comes on the stage. They do absolutely incredible things that seem totally supernatural, but they're not. There's a sleight of hand. There's some sort of magic behind it. And so faith is designed by God to transcend all of the senses. And the reason is this. If I believe because I saw then that's not really faith, because I'm believing in what I saw. If I believe because I heard, or I believe because of a sign, then you quit doing the signs, and I don't believe anymore. If I believe only because I get a blessing, what happens when I don't get the blessing? Do I still believe? There has to be something greater than our senses that we place our firm persuasion and conviction is. It's exactly what the Lord is telling us in Hebrews 11.1. I've gone through this time and time again, so I just want to go through it quickly as we look exactly what these words mean. Now faith, it's pistis, firm persuasion, conviction, belief in the truth. Not just belief in something in general, but belief in the truth. Now faith is the substance It's the base, it's the foundation, it's the reality, the essence, the Greek word means. It's what underlies or builds up or supports the apparent. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Unfortunately, we think of hope as like some Christmas dream where maybe it'll come, maybe it won't. But the word here means to trust and to expect with desire and confident assurance. It's not like I hope I'm going to do it. I know I am. I hope my dad loves me. No, I know he does. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence, the conviction, and here we go again, of things not seen. Why would he define it that way? Faith is not based on sight or touch or feel or taste. Prove to me God exists. What, what, like, like, so you can touch him or feel him? I can prove to you God exists. Look at my life. Look at what God has done. It's based on faith. And this is saving faith versus the kind of faith it takes just to get in an airplane. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 and let me, let me show you how this works out. It's just turn to the, turn to the left. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11. I'm not going to read all these, but I want you to see that every one of the people put in here as an example of faith in this roll call of faith did something based on their belief. And they were justified or included in here, not because of what they believed, but of what they did 
based on that belief, how they exercised that faith. Verse 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of not things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. We don't know that, but we believe that is true. Verse 4, by faith, Abel, just believed? No, he offered God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. He acted on what he believed. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken away. We don't know that that happened. We can't prove that that happened. But I am totally, absolutely, completely convinced it did based on faith. Because verse 6 says that without faith, it is absolutely categorically impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The next one is Noah in verse number 7. By faith, Noah. Well, how did you act out your faith, Noah? I built a boat in the middle of a desert when it had never rained. Okay. Verse number 8. By faith, Abraham. I'm living in, in Ur of the Chaldees, and God says, I want you to leave your family and your friends and everything that you know. Sell your house and all your stock and your business. I want you to take you and your family. I want you to travel to a land that you've never been before, and when you get there, I'll tell you to stop. And Abraham did it. If Abraham didn't do it, we would say, well, obviously you didn't have faith, Abraham, because your faith was justified by your actions. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. Verse uh, um, verse number 17 again, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. It was the offering up of Isaac that validated his, his faith. Verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, but he did it wrong based on what he should have done, but he followed God. Verse 21, by faith Jacob, when he was dying, did something. By faith Joseph, verse 22, when he was dying, did something. By faith Moses. And on and on and on. The idea is the fact is when you go through this roll call of faith, everybody who is highlighted because of their faith is only highlighted because they acted on it. And it was their action that brought God's glory. In other words, just to sit at home and believe and still live contrary to that belief brings God nothing. But the people look at Moses or Noah and say, why are you doing this? Because of my faith. If I wasn't doing this, you wouldn't even know that I believed. All right, Lord, so I got that. There's some sort of action involved. We have to exercise our faith by putting ourselves in situations or acting out on what we know to be true, even if it's contrary to what we want to do. I I, I got that. But how much faith is necessary? I mean, Jesus talked about faith of a mustard seed. You can do something magnanimous. So I, 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 I don't even know what that means, but I don't even know how much faith I'm supposed to have, but your word tells me what little faith is. Now think about that. If someone comes up, if Jesus comes up to us and says, you know, why do you have little faith? What he's telling me is whatever circumstances was involved in that conversation, that the faith that I'm exercising at that time was less than he expected me to have. True? So whatever you expected... I had less. 
In this situation, it's again, this phrase is only used five times. It's a, it's a compound word, a Greek word with little and, and pistis put together. And one of those five times is the same story told both in Matthew and Luke. But uh, the best way to, to figure out what little faith is, is to see why Jesus used that phrase and what was expected of believers at that time. First one is Matthew 6.30. And repeat it again in Luke 12.28. And here's what he says. He says, now God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of substandard little less than I expect, faith, less than normal faith. Do you remember the context of that message? Do you remember what he was talking about? Well, turn to Matthew 6. Let me show it to you. He's talking about all the things that we spend our life doing, all the things that we fret about, all the things that we worry about. He's talking about taking care of ourselves, pretty much money, and what money buys. Verse number 24, no one can serve two masters. You will hate the one and love the other, or else be loyal to the one, and you will despise the other. You cannot serve God in mummy, or mammon, or money, or wealth, or riches, is what it means. Therefore, there's the statement, here's the conclusion. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. We all worry about our life. As a matter of fact, our life is the most important thing in our life. We make decisions based on how it affects us and whether it's going to cost me money or not cost me money or, or whether I'm going to take a step down in my standard of living. And it's us that we spend most of our time trying to take care of. Jesus says, don't worry about your life. Well, what aspect of my life? What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on? Because it's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. And he gives a couple examples. Look at the birds of the of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? I'm sitting in my desk and I'm studying this. I'm looking right out the window. We've got the, some plants there in the front yard, and I see these little birds, like hummingbirds, I guess they are, little birds with these wings that are flying so fast that you can't even imagine, and they've got these long nose, and they're looking around for stuff, and, and I'm pausing, I'm just watching this, and I'm realizing that God provides for that bird. That bird doesn't seem like he's worrying about stuff like I worry about. And he says here that if God takes care of that bird who doesn't know what he's going to eat tomorrow, or probably later on today, Am I not worth more than that? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, nor how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, and yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown away, will he not much more clothe you? O ye of little faith. So what Jesus is apparently saying to them is, you guys should live this way. You should get it. This is what kingdom living is all about. But since we don't, he's telling them, and if you fit into this category, telling us that um, our faith must be substandard. 
Therefore, do not worry saying, what shall we eat? And what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Or how am I going to pay for my retirement? Or how am I going to do this? Or how am I going to do everything that I want to do for all these things that Gentiles seek? But your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. But seek first, first, the eternal, his kingdom, and his righteousness. And God will take care of all the details and add all these things to you. Okay. Failed that one. What's the next one? Matthew 8, 26. But he said to them, why are you fearful? Oh, you of little faith. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. Remember the context of this statement? Jesus is in a boat, and he's in a boat with a bunch of fishermen. He's the carpenter, they're the fishermen. And they're out in the middle of the sea, and this big gale comes up, and there's water splashing over the side, and the boat is rocking like this, and Peter and James and John and Andrew and these veteran fishermen are scared to death. They're going to sink and die. Remember what Jesus was doing? He was asleep on a cushion. How can you be asleep in a situation like that? He was resting, asleep. And again, I've I've seen pictures of these boats, and they're not that wide. I can't imagine what the rocking was like. And and they woke him up, and they said, Lord, we're perishing. Don't you care that we're going to die? We have the Son of God in the boat in us, who is resting and abiding in his Father to the point that he's sound asleep during a a storm that is petrifying veteran fishermen. And he wakes them up. The the fishermen wake him up. And he said, why are you fearful? Oh, ye of little faith. And he rose, rebuked the wind. Everything was calm. Gosh, how many circumstances in my life have I panicked on? Just been scared to death. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I don't know what's going to happen. God, 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 you got to do something. Stop. Stop. You have the Son of God living in you. You are greatly loved. All the stuff we've been talking about in Ephesians. Oh, ye of little faith. In other words, guys, your faith didn't measure up to what was normal in this situation. Now, will you quit bothering me? I need to take a nap. Third time, Matthew 14. It says, immediately stretched out his hand and caught him and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Do you remember this context? So they're petrified. Jesus has sent them away. They've been rowing all night. All of a sudden, they see this apparition coming across the water. They didn't have searchlights. They couldn't really see what was going on out there. It was black. Um, they, they they see Jesus is coming, and first they're frightened, and then they realize, oh my gosh, there's the Son of God walking on the water. And Peter, of course, Lord, if it's really you, oh, um, I, I command that I can step out of the boat and walk towards you. Come. I have no idea how far he walked, but if you're thinking about the fact that they're on the boat with lanterns, it must not have projected light more than where I am to Vic. That means I just can't see light from lanterns going on any further than that. And, all right, so come on out. So Peter steps out of the boat, and he starts walking to Jesus. And it, it's not like he's walking a quarter mile here. You know, he's, he's walking 15 feet, 20 feet, until he starts walking back into the darkness. And between the boat and everybody else with their mouth open and Jesus, 
All of a sudden, he realizes, I'm walking on water. And there's some waves that are whipping up on my ankles. Of course, Jesus is walking on water, and he starts to sink and starts to panic. And Jesus reaches out and grabs him by the hand, and they walk back to the boat together, and he says, Oh, Peter, why did you doubt you of little faith? Well, it was little faith to do something miraculous at the permission of the Lord? And to, and to doubt, yes, because you never kept your eyes on Christ. Sobering, isn't it? I'd have been one of the ones in the boat, not even wanting to get out, elbowing Thomas going, you know, his name means rock. Watch this. You didn't. That's something. Matthew 16, 8. He just, let's turn to this one, actually. He just fed a ton of people, and they collected basketfuls of bread and fish. Matthew 16, 8. We see in Matthew 15, verse 32, he feeds 4,000 people. They've collected all these, these fragments of food left. Pharisees and Sadducees are beginning to confront Jesus and Jesus talks about the fact that, that you, you're looking for a sign, but, uh, but the, the sign's not going to be given. And um, when he's getting his disciples away, he begins to give them a teaching based on the leaven of the Pharisees, verse 5. And when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. That he just fed 4,000 people. And Jesus said to him, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have taken no bread. Really? You're so earthly focused that you think I'm chastising you because you didn't take bread, like when I'm going to get hungry? Do you remember what I just did? 5,000 people, the 4,000 people, the 7 baskets, the 12 baskets. Did you forget all of that? Your mind is so focused on the here and now that you miss the eternal. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Oh, ye of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves? It's because you bought no bread. I'm trying to tell you something of profound significance. But you can't see beyond your maxed out credit cards and your empty wallet. In each of these cases, and these are the only ones that we find him using that combination word, in each of these cases, Jesus expected those who knew him to have faith to move beyond their physical senses and embrace something bigger. But they didn't. Unfortunately, many times I don't do that in my life either. So... um. Where are you in your faith journey? You may find this uncomfortable, but the only way that you're going to grow by faith is to get rid of the things that you're depending on now and expect God to make up the difference. One of the questions that we asked uh, yet last week was, how much money is it, does God want you to accumulate, using as an example, and how much money does he want you to give away? He doesn't want me to give any away except the mandatory tithe that I have, and he wants me to accumulate tons and tons and tons of money. Why? Because that's what I want. 
And so, if, Lord, if, if I can accumulate a whole bunch of money, if I can make like $500,000 a year, oh, look at how much I could help you with in my tithe. My tithe would now be fifty grand rather than $3,000. Oh, so you're still not giving away the same percentage, but you just want God to bless us because this is, a, this is how we live that it's focused on today and, and what we want. And, and one of the ways that you grow in faith is to put yourself in situations where you have no one you can turn to but him. As long as we can turn to us, our faith doesn't grow. But when we, we're put in a situation, or God forbid, he puts us in a situation, that's when our faith grows. Let me give you a couple more here why it's important. There's these two blind men that are calling out to Jesus. And uh, the disciples are telling him to be quiet. And he comes into the house, and a blind man came to him. I can't imagine what the person of the house thought about that. And Jesus said to them, because they're in a situation where they've got no place to go but Christ. Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. Yes, that's why we're here. And he touched their eyes and said, not because of my compassion, not because I'm sovereign, not because I'm using you as a sign, not because I want to bless your life, not because of any other reason than your faith. Let it be done unto you. We've got a woman that has an issue of blood. You know the story. I can't imagine what that must have been like for her. She's been to all these physicians. She had spent all her money on that, and she only got worse. And this this uncleanliness about her, ceremonially unclean, that, that had her 24-7 for years and years and years was still there. And she thought to herself, if I can just, if I can just come up and touch the hem of Christ's garment, I know, I know, I know I'll be healed. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus recognized that something took place, and he turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith, your trust, your faith has made you well. Well, was it just believing? No. I had to believe, fight through the crowd, the stares of all the other people that knew I was unclean. I had to come up behind Jesus, and I felt so low about myself. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have the confidence to ask him for a healing. I just kind of came up by stealth, knowing that if I could just touch his garment, I would be healed. It was the action of that faith that healed her. The two men, they're crying, they're crying, and after Jesus for being blind, and finally they follow him into the house. And I, I need your attention. I, I know people are going to throw us out. I know people are going to going to make fun of us. I know I'm tripping over things as I'm getting there. But Lord, heal me! And it was the actions based on their faith that healed them. This is a tough one here. Got this Canaanite woman whose daughter is really sick, and she comes to Jesus, and Jesus really disrespects her when we read it ourselves in our vernacular. I didn't come to heal you. I only came to heal the lost sheep of Israel. I know, Lord. I know. But even the dogs get to eat some crumbs that fall off the master's table. Woman. Great is your faith. And even when I try to deter you as a, as a teaching lesson, you were still there. Let it be done as you desired, based on her actions that fulfilled her faith 
And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So where are you? Well, I'm still relying on my job and my money and my wits and the government and the situations we're in. I'm I'm still, I'm trusting, I got faith in all these things I really can't control. But if we're placed in a situation where we can't trust those anymore, do you have the kind of faith to have that kind of relationship with Christ that he will heal you or feed you or take care of you? Do you have the kind of faith to really believe that if you seek first his kingdom, first above everything, even above your kingdom, and his righteousness, that he will add everything to you? I, I do, Lord, but I'm not gonna, I don't want to be satisfied with what he adds to me. I want him to multiply it to me. So it's all about us. Always is. Always is. Especially living in your best life now kind of Christianity. You know what I mean? Be a faith prepper means that we need to be able to have the kind of faith to believe that if we're thrown in jail and we're flogged like Paul and Silas for an unjust reason, that there's nothing to worry or fret about. My God is sovereign and can do anything he wants. And so therefore, even suffering like that, we're going to sing praise songs to our sovereign God who's put us in a situation that is literally hopeless. And just wait on him to get us out. And if he chooses to get us out, we praise him. And if he chooses to let us die, like he did James and Stephen, we get heaven too, right? That's faith. That's faith prepper kind of faith. I read stories about Christians who have gone through immense persecution. And... You know, governments have turned against them, and I, I see what is just commonplace faith in their lives, and I realize I've never seen that kind of faith exercised in America by anyone ever, including me, ever. I read some stories about what it was like in, in, um, under, uh, in Romania or even during the Soviet Union in the 40s and 50s and 60s where the Christians would get together and they would huddle in a room and sometimes the, you know, the, the, the uh, Russians would come in and they would drag the pastor off and, and they would never see him again and he'd be sent to the gulag or whatever they did to the Siberia, you know, tortured and killed. And so who's going to lead us now? The group didn't break up. Someone else stood up and says, I'll fill the void and I'll be here and I'll be leading and I'll be the pastor of this church until they take me away. Because my job here is not, to, is not to accumulate stuff for myself and eat, drink, and be merry until I die. My job here is to be a light in darkness. And Jesus said in John 3 that the darkness wants to crush and stamp out the light because it exposes its evil deeds. Do I have that kind of faith? It's never been required of us before. Hence the Laodicean church age in which we live. But it's coming. It's coming. You can see it prophesied in Scripture that it's coming. So what do I do? I want to run a half marathon. So I have to do things differently than I'm doing now. Because I don't. I'm just using this as an example. I have to do things differently than I'm doing now. But if I wanted to run a half marathon or just a 5K or whatever it is, which I would have a hard time running from here back to my uh, back door, then things need to change. I need to get up in the morning and start exercising. 
I need to do a little bit more today than I did yesterday, and it's unpleasant, and it's tiring, and I don't like it, and every fiber in my body says just sleep, and this is a terrible goal, and who wants to do this? But people who achieve these kind of things force themselves, they they bring their, as Paul talks about, their body into subjection for some greater goal. And we admire people like that. I can't believe it. He lost 40 pounds and run a mar- run a, run a, ran a marathon on his 50th birthday. Wow, I'm impressed. But spiritually, we have to do the same thing. And the way we do that is we ask the Lord, Lord, I need to be put in circumstances where I can't really trust on my own wits and resources to get me out of that because then my faith is placed in me. I have to be placed in situations, Lord, where my faith can grow and be trusted. And I don't know how that is for each of you. I know how it is with some things in my life, and I've had to make some changes over the last couple weeks um, that were robbing me of opportunities to be have my faith built. But the reality is, that's how it works. That's what we have to do. And I'm asking you to just ask him to begin that process in your life. There's no checklist here. It's not like everybody has to do this. But God knows your heart, and he knows where you're at, and he knows what he wants to encourage in your life, and he knows what he wants to get rid of in your life, so that the object of your faith is always him. Always him and nothing else. There have been times in my life where God has told me to do something that was beyond my resources to get it done. And we did, and we had to trust on him, and it was a, a season in my life where we talked about we lived by faith, and we really did. I, I was unable to make enough money to provide what God had told us to do, and so God just reined it in. Those were the best times of my life. They are still the high points in my spiritual life. And if I shared those stories with you right now, they always moved me to emotion. Because God was so real and he was so passionate and all the glory and everything that happened came from me. All the glory belonged to him. You know, when, when tough times happen to a nation and the church suffers persecution, it shines. The, the chaff is blown away and what is left are those true sold out believers in the Lord Jesus Christ who bond together as one to have faith. The early church, and again, I'm not suggesting any of this, but the early church did that very thing. We are going to jettison all our financial, everything that we have, we're going to put it in one big pot and live by faith because our goal no longer is to my house or my vineyards. My goal is his kingdom. And people were saved daily because of that. Do you remember? Read the book of Acts. And again, not suggesting we do communal living or anything like that, but I am suggesting that you ask the Lord what steps you can make to put you in a situation where your faith will grow. Amen? And hopefully, hopefully, he'll give us the opportunity to be able to choose what areas to have our faith grow in rather than places and situations where we're forced to have faith in him, like a serious illness or loss of a job or a cataclysmic event that takes away everything so we have nothing left but just to look up to him. That's the hard way. I would rather do it the easy way, wouldn't you? But it has to start with something. Faith is justified by how we act on that faith. 
And so you individually ask the Lord what he wants you to act on, to prove him real to your family and your friends and even you, and then he'll get the glory. Let me pray.